0: Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition where we explore books, authors, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Jason Gale, the co founder of the Catholic Studies Academy, and today I'm joined with Dr. Richard Buzicelli, lecturer in theology for the CSA. Our topic today is Pope John Paul II, his legacy, and an exploration of his contribution to theology and philosophy. Dr. Buzicelli is a lecturer in theology. He has received uh, his license in sacred theology from the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., and his doctorate in sacred theology from the International Marian Research Institute. He's been a scholar and professor for almost two decades, author of two books, and publishes on a wide range of topics in theology and philosophy. His dissertation was on the thought of John Paul II, in particular his personalistic approach as it relates to Mary. Mary. He's an expert both in the thought of John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger. So, Dr. Buzicelli, I think a good place to start uh, is maybe to situate uh, John Paul II's papacy within the 20th century. Uh, So if you could do that for us, just kind of maybe look at how does he fit in maybe with some of the other uh, popes, um, but also maybe within the secular history as well. Right. So what was really interesting
1: about John Paul II was, first of all, at the time, you know, the – the startling thing was that he was not Italian. He was the first non-Italian pope for hundreds of years. Now, it's not true that popes have always been Italian, right? But but for a good long time, there just hadn't been anyone but an Italian in the chair of Peter, which, of course, makes sense since it's the Bishop of Rome, after all, right? But um, but it turns out that with John Paul II, a change really occurred in the papacy that that pushed us in the direction of what Um, you know, we see today, which is a a really global papacy, where the papacy is not, um, it it seems that the idea of being bishop of Rome, bishop of a particular diocese, has in some ways taken a back seat to the global aspect of the papacy. For good or ill, John Paul II, uh, in a way, caused that to happen just by his election, um, even leaving aside his... um, his proclivity to uh, to travel the world in ways that other popes had not before but more than that he was um you know being specifically polish during the time of the cold war right when poland was behind the iron curtain was uh, a coup all by itself and that um as we know from uh, from secular history turned out to be a uh, an important uh, an important dimension of the ultimate defeat of, uh, the Soviet Union, right, mm-hmm. in the long run. Uh, once, so there was a, it was a very bad thing to happen to the Iron Curtain that, that, um, that the Pope should be elected from, from behind it, right? Right. And now right. suddenly right. move forward, uh, into, um, into the realm of freedom, you know, and, um, and be in, in contact with world leaders without, the approval of um of the communist regime <laughs> and yeah, it turned out yeah. to be
0: disastrous for them oh yeah yeah it <laughs> led to their to their eventual you know downfall and, right. and I, like and like you said you know i mean it was what the first uh, non-italian pope since what the like the 16th century or something like that yeah it
1: was uh, hundreds yeah. of years yeah
0: yeah yeah which which you know i think you know for the you know to be the particular bishop of that diocese, you know, in Italy, I mean, you, you think about it, I mean, that, you know, rarely happens today where all of a sudden, you know, oh, the new bishop of Dublin or something like that is this, you know, American guy, you know, that, right. you know, that, that kind of thing, you know, just just doesn't really happen. But, you know, the Bishop of Rome obviously is this, this other kind of uh, a thing when it comes to the particular bishop. Now, with regards to to John Paul ii within like the kind of the the the, the string of popes maybe from uh-huh. you know Pope Leo the 13th we could start there because you know Pope Leo the 13th you know ushered in you know the uh, the 20th century and John Paul ii ushered in the 21st century so maybe you know how how does his papacy kind of uh, how is it situated and how is he maybe you know uh, how does he fit when you look at the the, the collective of the uh the, the the popes there the twentieth century. How do you think he, right. he fits in there?
1: Well, first of all, he did he did think that that um, God had kind of chosen him to uh, lead the church into the twenty first century. He was very clear about that through most of his papacy, mm-hmm. and I think that that's one of the reasons that, um, in spite of his uh, terrible state of health toward the end, he did not um, retire. Right. So you know, as healthcare has improved in the course of the 20th century, this issue of Pope's retiring has has kind of come up, right? And sure. not just with um, not just with uh, with John Paul II, but I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Paul VI had had also considered the question. Um, but the um, but it really you know it became it was really a pressing issue for um, For John Paul II, uh, because in fact, he had, he had reached a point where he was debilitated, but he was persuaded that he just had to, um, he had to lead the church through this period. So that's the first thing, right? Is he had this sense of mission to his papacy that, um, you know, where he wasn't, um, I mean, I I guess you could criticize it and think that he was narcissistic or something. I, I don't think that would be correct. Um, I think, I think that. You know, he figured, well, he's, he was chosen to be Pope, and now he has this obligation. And as far as the horizon that he sees for it is, um, is crossing the threshold of the 21st century. So, um, so that was the journey he saw himself to have been on, right? Now, the, so Leo XIII going back to the other end of the century, um, he's the one who gave us what we call the Leonine Revival, right? Which was where he, um, he called for a renewed study of St. Thomas. And, you know, there was a um, particular historical situation to which that was a response, right? Which was the modernist crisis, which by the time, right now, the modernist crisis is a, is a long lived crisis, right? It goes on. It really started under, um, I want to say, um, Pius the Ninth. And, uh, though it didn't have that name at the time. Sure. Um, it was, um, it was the same basic set of problems intellectually, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, Pius the Ninth had a great deal to say about that particular crisis without naming it as such. It was under Pius the Ninth that the phrase Americanism was coined. And Americanism is a, a kind of precursor, right, to what ultimately became known as modernism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but um but Leo the response to modernism was to recognize that the Catholic Church had by then assumed a sort of defensive posture with respect to the modern world. That um we had we had absented ourselves largely from philosophical dialogue at least the philosophical dialogue in which the rest of the world was engaged. And so um, he thought that if if we focused on the thought of St. Thomas, who had these particular qualities, right, of engaging secular sources in his time um, and being, of course, relatively uh, easy to read, his Latin, it's um, simpler than, say, that of Bonaventure or, um, Duns Scotus, right? Some of the other people who might have been alternatives. Also, Leo, of course, knew, uh, Thomas' thought better than he knew the thought of, of some of the other figures. Sure. So he picked St. Thomas and, um, and thought we should model our way of engagement with philosophy on the thought of St. Thomas. And, um, and when he, you know, so he, he doesn't envision, um, he doesn't envision everybody just becoming a sort of cookie cutter Thomist, right? right? But instead, kind of doing what it is that Saint Thomas did and learning how to do that from Saint Thomas um, as the guide, right? As sort of a, a, a universal teacher. And so, you know, this this um, that becomes the response that that Leo envisions for the for the modernist crisis is to basically reinsert ourselves into the dialogue, okay? By, again, doing what St. Thomas did, which was um, reading the sources of the time and actually engaging them, right? If you sort of imagine, right, the principle uh, that Umberto Eck had uh, enunciated uh, back during the time of the Protestant Reformation, right, where he said, um, you don't dispute with heretics, you, you refute them, right? Right. That wasn't the, um, that wasn't the approach that Leo then went on to recommend, right? Instead, he thought we really should dispute them. We should engage them in, um, in debate and, um, and show that we can stand our own ground, you know? Not just that we're fending someone off, but that we're actually doing philosophy ourselves and that we have something intelligent to say. John Paul II is very much in that vein, okay? Though he departs from classical Thomism in some significant ways, mm-hmm. he is, um, he is like many of the people. Uh, I mean, I would put, I would situate John Paul II, Carol Wojtyla, right, as a member of, um, of the aggiornamento movement, right, certainly, sure. uh, and as a sort of, uh, ressourcement theologian. So, um, but the ressourcement movement, uh, is, originally born precisely out of the uh, leonine revival right it it is actually born out of people taking leo seriously and engaging um engaging the philosophical dialogue and doing what saint thomas did which was what read the sources right Right. read the fathers he familiarized himself uh so if you know the you know the 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 text of saint thomas the Catena oria right the uh that's where he um that's where he went and cataloged as much as he could of the sayings of the fathers. Uh, by today's standards, it was sort of a meager effort, but at the time, of course, given the limitations that they had um, with uh, availability of texts and so forth, it was a tremendous undertaking. And you could see his dedication to really being serious about, uh, about the tradition, right? Receiving it and passing it forward and being honest about what it said. So this is what, the Resource Month theologians actually tended to do for themselves. Only now they had much more, uh, much more available to them in terms of, in terms of original, uh, original sources.
0: Yeah, so it's it's interesting that even uh, that you know Pope Leo would you know kind of uh, particularly bring up Saint Thomas and you know not just say that he needs to be studied and kind of become the foundation, but also to to kind of uh, uh, take up the spirit of Saint Thomas of not being afraid to engage the outside world. Um, And if somebody has an objection to the faith, to not just set them aside and say, well, that's dumb, you know, I'm right. I don't even need to address what you're saying, but to say, no, let's look at these objections like St. Thomas, you know, in the, in the summa we talked about this Mm -hmm. in a previous episode, you know, how the summa is, you know, just this, this engagement with like, you know, 14 different, you know, people, and sometimes a lot, many more than that, you know, Different objections about one point of the faith. He wasn't. He He didn't set somebody aside, but he respected them uh, uh, enough in their opinion uh, to to look at their objection and, and and dispute it. You know, to 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 put it in conversation with some of the other things. You know, Pope Leo definitely uh, uh, calls uh, calls the church, not just you know particular people, but the church as a whole, to kind of return to this approach. Uh, to not just study Saint Thomas, but also look at Saint Thomas's approach to to the outside world and to theology. Um, now, what about when you when we get into you know Pope Pius the tenth, and, and moving on from there, um, can we see or can we see maybe John Paul II as kind of you know uh, a son of these uh, earlier uh, uh, papacies?
1: I don't know what I would say about his relationship with Pius the tenth. Um, you know, for example, Pius X was uh, very serious about liturgy, right? And that wasn't, I think we can say that wasn't really John Paul II's strong suit. Uh, he's not really known for, um, you know, great moves in liturgical reform or anything. You know, Pius X was much less ready to embrace um he was more. He was far more reactionary, really, against modernism than, sure. than Leo XIII was, and even and much more so than um, than Pius IX had been. Um, Pius X was very, I think, um, you know, very rigid when it came to his uh, engagement with the contemporary world. In some ways, you know, you could argue that he's he's mildly um, discontinuous with Leo. You know, he's not nearly as open uh a pope as Leo was. But Pius twelfth is a Pope, in my opinion, much closer to Leo than um than than Pius the Tenth was. You know, he's a he's a favorite of um he's a favorite of many of the strong traditionalists, right? Sure. Uh, in fact if you surf the web and you see um you find all the Sede Vicantist um people out there, right? They usually sure. stop counting popes uh, at Leo at um, at Pius the twelfth, right? Every every pope after that is uh-huh. is an anti pope to them. Um, of course, I don't agree with that view, but but I find it interesting, right? That they stop it they stop at Pius the twelfth, and in fact, Pius the twelfth is um, is much less a rigorous than I think they would have liked right so the 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 Sedeve contest for example there's that um there's that episode recounted by de Lubach in um his autobiography right his memoirs uh, at the service of the church where he recounts a dispute right so this is a this is a, a a fairly lengthy manuscript um it's not a complete autobiography but it it's a memoir in which he recounts the dispute that arose after the writing of, um, Naturel*, right, uh, and, um, Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, uh, a prominent Dominican theologian at the time and a very staunch classical Thomas took issue with it because, um, because Henri de Lubach maintained that the, um, that human beings, that human beings were made by God, um, by nature right to have an orientation to him and that the orientation now you know the orientation of course for de lubac right comes through comes through grace but we were made to have grace as his position and and um for Garigou lagrange that was that was tantamount to heresy okay um <laughs> and Garigou attempted to get um attempted to get Ari De Lubach condemned as a heretic, right? So he he harassed him. I mean he went after this guy with with fangs, you know? And um and so there's a now during this period De Lubach is um not I want to say silenced. He wasn't really silenced exactly, but he was he was told that he could not teach in a seminary. For a while, but he was encouraged to continue writing. Um, but at one point he has an encounter with Pius XII and he thinks, he thinks he's going to get it, right? Um, but in fact, what happens is Pius XII put his hand on De Lubach's shoulder and he says, I'm familiar with your work. Um, don't worry about a thing. Right. And he, he um so apparently Pius the Twelfth actually liked De Lubach quite a bit. And we know the story, right, that um that De Lubach was actually the first now this Pius XII Twelfth wasn't part of this, but uh after the death of Pius the Twelfth and then the um papacy of um of John the Twenty Third, uh De Lubach was the first Person to be invited to the Second Vatican Council as a peritus, right? So, uh, he was completely redeemed and, um, and eventually became, uh, you know, was named a cardinal, right? Um, so, so anyway, um, I think I would say that Pius XII, you know, John Paul II is very much in continuity with Pius XII, um, and Leo XIII, right? But, you know, popes are different people and, and we, I, I guess we have this expectation somehow, sort of mythical expectation that popes are completely interchangeable, right? That they, that they, um, there's absolute continuity from one pope to another. And that, that's not really true, right? Instead, you have to find the continuity. And I think this is, um, so if you approach the, if you approach the history of the papacy with, you know, with a, a theological habit of mind, right, where you know that there's continuity and in the continuity is the truth, right, is what it is that, 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 um, that's enduring, right, in mm-hmm. what the church says, then, An exploration of the history of the papacy, and not just the history of the papacy, but this would be one dimension of the problem, right? An exploration of the history of the papacy in the search for those threads of continuity between the people who occupy the office is the way in which we discover what it is that endures in magisterial teaching, right? Um, But not everything that popes do and say is something to be emulated uh to be passed on right it's not it's not always enduring in its value so um but there is but there's always something in, that endures through the history of the papacy uh in the long view right and there i can there i think that we can see it we can trace a thread from um really i would say tracing back to to Pius the through Leo the 13th through Pius the and I would say through um, John the uh, Twenty-Third and um, and Paul the Sixth, right, right through John Paul the Second.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean even when you just look at the the twentieth century, like if you wanted to, and this is my own perspective, kind of, but I don't think I'm I'm wrong or alone in it. If you were to point to kind of one thing that that the 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 majority of popes during that period were we're encountering and, and, and battling, uh, you know, we could just simply just call that modernism, you know, because, I mean, even when you t- look at, you know, the, the the writings of John Paul II, whether it be, you know, Veritatis Splendor or some of the other ones, I mean, it was still, he was still uh, encountering as much of modernism as, you know, Pope Leo XIII was or as, you know, Pope Pius X, that it was, you know, and now granted, modernism is this kind of umbrella of, uh, a whole lot of things that are wrong, but I think you know, uh, um, kind of that characteristic of the twentieth century papacies was that they were encountering this this huge issue of of modernism, and, and not to simply you know do everything reactive, you know, but mm-hmm. to kind of you know engage it uh, uh, and don't just kind of sit back and, and let it happen, but to, to go out and, and
1: right. And I think this is this is really one of the things that marks john paul ii's papacy right is that engagement and not just reaction Mm -hmm. the one thing that i can um that i can say about john paul ii is that in um in some ways you know he may have been more more generous to the modern world than the modern world uh deserved right and um and of course, that's a criticism too that, you know, was leveled against St. Thomas in his own time, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> you know, but what I, what I mean by this in the case of John Paul II is that in some ways, I think that he, you know, he took for granted that his interlocutor was a person of goodwill.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that that probably was not uh, entirely correct, <laughs> right? There was and is a very strong antipathy in contemporary secularism against the church Mm -hmm. and hostility, which isn't really about discovering truth. So to treat, right. So to treat the uh, contemporary interlocutor as a person who seeks the same thing that we seek, right? So we're in a privileged position of, you know, we have a, a particular vantage point on the truth given through revelation that can be trusted. And in this we can be tremendously confident, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can fearlessly engage our interlocutor, uh, knowing that if anything is going to happen, it's going to be that, uh, we help this person discover what he seeks because in fact, uh, we ourselves have found it. And not that we don't have anything to learn from this person, right. But that we have to teach, uh, the, the most important thing, uh, In this discussion, right? So so that's one. That's what we can. That's what we would like to be able to say. Sure. But if the interlocutor really isn't looking for truth, but simply looking to destroy, Mm. which often is the case, I think it's undeniably so, then engagement and dialogue puts us at a position of uh, vulnerability while the other person assumes no such posture with respect to us right because it's not really a dialogue it's simply a sort of um a sort of um manipulation right it's a it's a it's a con game in which uh, we're sort of induced into assuming a position of dialogue where the other person really has no there's no interest in in such a thing
0: yeah yeah, yeah. there's absolutely no openness to learning anything or or even being or even you know gaining the ability to be empathetic towards a different point of view you know it's simply right. to I, it's simply to you know. destroy because you know and particularly i mean when you when you have a society that you know an element of it you know simply denies the, the existence of objective truth you know what the hell is the point of you know dialogue then <laughs> you know if if truth mm-hmm. is nothing that we can get at you know why do we dialogue
1: you know right or even, and this is, this is some, so John Paul II recognized this tendency, right? But he, he just remained unflagging in his confidence that people can always be, um, reasoned with, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I just, I think that he was probably mistaken about that, right? That there is, people can't be reasoned with when they choose not to be reasonable, right? Right. Uh, right. in my, in my view, right? So I, I disagree with him about that. Of course, that's not a, that's not a matter of revelation or anything, so you know disagreeing with the Pope on this is a perfectly legitimate thing to do, but you know he he really had this confidence that people can be reasoned with do you, uh do
0: you think this had to do with and we can get into this a little bit as well is you know uh do you think maybe you know kind of this this you know i don't want to say naive view of the human person but just a uh, uh a highly positive one of the of, of the human person and their intentions and everything. Um, yeah. Do you think this had to do maybe with even his uh, personalistic approach? Because, like you said, you know, he wasn't you know a strict Thomist in, the, in in any sort of the sense. But but you know, one of the things that he's known for now and people are reading about more was this personalistic approach uh, uh, to right. theology and the human person in particular.
1: Yeah. Well, he had a tremendous confidence, right? In the innate goodness of human beings. Now that doesn't mean, right? That he wasn't aware of original sin, sure. didn't take it seriously and all that, right? I mean, so let's not, let's not jump to any uh, unwarranted conclusions about, you know, him denying certain basic truths like fallenness and concupiscence and all this. <laughs> of course he did not. Right. He wasn't, he, he wasn't naive about those things at all, but he did. You know, I mean, he sided with De Lubach. He was very clearly, in fact, we have documentary evidence of this, right? That he, he agreed with De Lubach that human beings had a natural, uh, orientation to, a natural orientation to grace. Okay. And, um, and if that's the case, right? Then, then you would think that everything in the human being would strain toward the truth, toward the good, right? In spite of fallenness. Right. Okay. So we may be, um, easily duped we may be uh you know easily seduced subject to all kinds of misguidance right but fundamentally this orientation toward grace drives us forward and with the right guidance we can be led to what it is that we can't help but seek okay so that that that's basically what's driving his thought now we could still criticize that position as naive, even if we basically agree with the starting point, right? We could say, well, the issue, the issue of fallenness is more complex than that. And so simply affirming that human beings are um, made by God for grace doesn't actually lead to the, to the uh, inexorable conclusion that, that we're all striving to embrace it, right? right,
0: right.
1: <laughs> Without even knowing. But we don't have time to get into that discussion right now. But in any case, right, he did have this, he did have this confidence. And, um, the personalistic norm is largely a part of it, right? Because, so the personalistic norm, you hear that phrase in John Paul II fair amount, especially if you read his pre-papal writings where he develops the idea. Uh, what is it? Well, the personalistic norm actually, um, the articulation of it derives from the thought of Immanuel Kant. Okay, now that's interesting, right? Because Kant is not really a hero of <laughs> of orthodox Christian thought, right? Yeah, that's but, saying you know, it very that doesn't, mean that, he, <laughs> that doesn't mean that he had nothing intelligent to say or useful, sure, right? Sure, sure. So the personalistic norm is basically this, this view that a human being – is not simply a cog in a machine, mm-hmm. right? It's not simply a part of the cosmos or something um, whose purpose is completely um, extraneous to itself, right? So if we say, uh, why does a dog exist? Well, a dog exists, I don't know, to, um, as part of the ecosystem, to, to, in God's design, um, make human civilization possible, right? Because dogs can be domesticated, and they they help us to control larger animals and so forth, right? So they make it possible for us to raise cattle, herd sheep, right, and these kinds of things. Um, so the purpose of a dog isn't the dog; it's it's something other than the dog.
0: Right.
1: Whereas, right. For John Paul II, the person is an end in himself and he says that um, a person is to be engaged never merely as a means to an end but always as an end in himself and he say he goes so far as to say this right and this is the point at which we can see that uh, he, there is a departure from classical Thomism in his thought mm-hmm. right where he says that um, not even God himself. Right. Not even God himself can treat a human being uh, as a mere means. Right. So. Um, so, there. I mean, that that's
0: a that's a huge. Yeah, that's a really interesting position. Any sentence that begins uh, with not even God himself is always an interesting kind of. <laughs> right. But he literally he
1: literally does say this. Yeah. Uh, it's in it's he says it in um, in uh, love and responsibility. Yeah. I, I can almost see the page number in my mind. I think it's like page sixty-one or sixty-two in the edition that I have. One may disagree with it, right? I mean, you know, you don't have to agree with Saint with uh, with John Paul II, right, about this point. Um, but you know, you also can uh, agree with him, and um, it, it it is from a historical point of view, right? I mean, it is a departure from from classical Thomism. There's no question about that.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, for, the, for those of you that are listening, this is a, a kind of a, a current, uh, not necessarily, you know, uh, debate, but in some circles it is about kind of the, the bringing together or the, the interacting between Thomism and uh, John, particularly John Paul II's personalism. There's a couple of books I'll, I'll throw out or a couple of uh, resources I'll throw out there that are, I think are particularly good. And if Dr. Bruce Kelly has any more, you can feel free to add them. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, Father Norris Clark's little book, "Person and Being." You know, right? And uh, um, you know, uh, he makes the point, and I think it's it's interesting. He says about talking about what does he hope to accomplish, and he says uh, uh, to, to to graft the self communicative relational dimension of the person right onto the Thomistic metaphysics. Of being as extent as existential and a self communicative act, you know. So this mm-hmm. this this interaction between kind of the personalistic approach and also kind of the metaphysical realities of Thomism that, that, that Thomism brings in, uh, uh, it's a it's a very interesting topic and one that is you know right now within the church, you know, there, there's all sorts of study and dialogue going on, you know. Um, there's another speech out there that Peter Kreiff gave talking about personalism and Thomism. I think he, I think the title of the speech is like Thomersonalism or some kind of you know <laughs> kind of Peter Peter Crave kind of uh, quip that he that he gave it. But uh, uh, he made the point in there, which I which I thought was you know quite funny and, and right on the money. But he said you know who better to you know organize something like kind of this per- personalistic Thomism uh, than a Thomist, you know. So for those that find you know personalism kind of you know lacking definition and lacking form and things like that, he said who better to organize it than a Thomist? You know which which <laughs> I would just completely agree with. Uh, but also you know just to you know help our help our uh, listeners out there, it's a really really interesting topic. This uh, this idea of person and being, you know the the, the interaction of the two. Uh, it's certainly not one that's settled, and I think it's something that you know. Can, uh, really, I think, you know, I think for John Paul II, like you had said, he was really looking to, to kind of engage the world in that way. And so I think for him, he, he, you know, he found, you know, in, and whether, whether, you know, in Kant and in others, you know, saying, you know, can't, can this be kind of a starting point? You know, can we use kind of this phenomenological method, uh, um, as a way to, to, uh, uh, you know, interact with the yeah. world in this way. Well,
1: that's another thing we want to, we, we should probably talk about a little bit with yeah, with sure. John Paul II, right? Is, was he a phenomenologist? Yeah. Okay. And there are some people who think he was not a phenomenologist because they see phenomenology as somehow uh, incompatible with um, classical Catholic teaching. When he, so he was part of the World Phenomenological Society, mm-hmm. right? He, he was actually a member of that, right? That organization until, until, right up until he was elected Pope, at which time he, uh, he, um, resigned from it, okay? Sure. But, uh, Hans Koechler, who was a prominent member of that society, uh, knew, knew Karol Wojtyla, uh, personally, and they had sort of, um, you know, their work had influenced each other, right? Mm hmm. Um, so he had a personal audience with John Paul II after the election. And, um, and John Paul II said at that time, um, that he would have to resign, he would have to discontinue his involvement with the society because of his new responsibilities. But, he said, I want you to know that I will always consider myself a phenomenologist. Okay? And that's like the, those, that's the exact, those are the exact words, yeah. according to Hans Kochler. Now, you can, of course, you know, you can question whether Kochler is reporting correctly, but I have no reason to think that that uh, isn't an accurate, um, representation. Sure. But what is phenomenology, right? Is the real question. I think that the problem here is that many people mistake phenomenology for, uh, a substitute for metaphysics. Mm. And Kauravoy what never made that mistake rather it's a different stage in philosophical inquiry than metaphysics is now any trained philosopher should know that there are different stages in inquiry right Mm -hmm. that metaphysics comes after we've done some other things right it's the you don't just jump right into metaphysics you first have to you you first have to think a little bit about epistemology sure right and how do we even acquire knowledge okay So Aristotle, you know, not only is there the metaphysics, but there's the prior analytics, the posterior analytics, there's the categories, right? So he's doing an awful lot of background work before he goes on to develop metaphysics. Why can't we say the same thing here, right? What we're talking about is with phenomenology is a method of discovery that forms the basis upon which a metaphysic can then be constructed. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it's an attempt, right, to do this. It's an attempt to turn... How can I put this to kind of reset the discussion about metaphysics after the events of the enlightenment? So uh, first, you have Descartes, who begins with this sort of radical um, doubt. OK, that move changed everything. Right. If you think about it, that move changed everything in the way that we in the way that we can even begin to approach metaphysics. Sure. If we're doubting everything away, right, then we're doubting away even
0: knowledge itself, even the
1: yeah. basis yeah. upon which we, we determine what it is we can know, yeah. right? Um, so with Hume then, he takes this to its further conclusion, Hume does, right? And he's like, hey, uh, Rene, um, I get what you're trying to do here, But like, you want to get radical about doubt. (laughs) Let's get radical about doubt. (laughs) Cause and effect. Nah. Yeah. Time. Nah, I don't think so. (laughs) We don't know any of this, right? How about me, my own existence? I know I'm a bundle of perceptions. In other words, I know, I know this moment. That's all that I know. I don't know that there was a past. I don't know there's a future. I just know that right now I experience, right? I have this perception. That becomes the foundational point, right, for, um, for phenomenology. So Edmund Husserl Mm -hmm. had written his seminal, uh, his seminal book, right, in phenomenology. What was it entitled? Cartesian Meditations, right? (laughs) He's turning back the clock and, and, and he's trying to go back to Descartes and say, okay, okay, let's do this the right way. Let's, let's grant you the doubt. Because we can't we can't just pretend none of this ever happened. We have to actually. There have been questions that have been raised, problems that have been identified. Now we have to engage them. So, so let's um, but let's see if we can do this more carefully than had been done before. Mm-hmm. And let's look deep into the um, the the movement that occurs. Okay, and this is how Husserl went on to describe it. Right, the movement that occurs. From phenomenon into proper experience. Okay, so the two ideas, phenomenon and experience, are not synonymous in phenomenology. Do you follow me? Sure. sure. Right, so first we have the sensory stimulation coming at us. Experience occurs, and this is an insight from Kant, right? Experience occurs when the intellect, with whatever structure it brings to the table, not in Kant, by the way, a completely new idea. We see this already in St. Thomas mm-hmm. and Aristotle, right? That the 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 the, the, uh, the thing is known according to the mode of knowledge of the knower, mm-hmm. right? So um, we bring something to the to the phenomena that shapes that into what we would call experience. And phenomenology is about tracing that movement as carefully as possible, right? Unpacking what's going on as phenomenon becomes experience. Yeah, that's what I, it's about.
0: Right? Yeah, and I think you know, yeah. with with kind of that, that explanation, you can also see where there can be a varieties of phenomenological positions, where you know mm-hmm. you can you can where you can have this this understanding of phenomenology with you know a metaphysics that's you know uh, similar to St. Thomas. Or you can have it, you know, where it's more along the lines of the skeptics, where, where you really can't know anything. So, you know, there. so even within, you know, phenomenology in that way, there are these, you know, varieties, whether whether you completely deny metaphysical being or you take it into account and say, okay, well, how does this, how does the, you know, the phenomena has to do with the metaphysical being? And from there is our experience. So what is this metaphysical being both myself but also within uh uh the 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 phenomena taking place
1: right so yeah and john paul ii was definitely in the camp that metaphysics is possible
0: sure
1: right and and he i mean with kant of course you know you see the undermining of the very possibility of metaphysics although kant thinks that he's preserving the possibility of metaphysics but in fact he's kind of defining it away right he's he's turning it into something entirely different but john paul ii is confident that um, metaphysics in the classical sense right mm-hmm. is something that can be done but in order to get there we have to pass through this phenomenological method mm-hmm. now this is an interesting thing too in, in john paul ii and that is apparently as we see in fetus et ratio he does concede that the old metaphysic that we've been using is in many ways passe right that it it is not sufficient to the task of contemporary philosophical discourse, mm-hmm. and you know, the, to to account for everything we've learned, you know, in the past 700 years, in terms of um, quantum mechanics and other things, right? It's just it it needs there needs to be a new metaphysic, uh, according to uh, John Paul II, and phenomenology is the way to get there the way to prepare the ground for the development of such a a metaphysic now does he think that um the that the classical metaphysic at work in Thomism is uh useless no he doesn't but it's sort of like working with newtonian um physics when you've got quantum mechanics Mm -hmm. right yeah you could do a lot still with newtonian physics right i mean if that's all you've got you're still going to be able to build bridges and skyscrapers and do you're going to be able to do a lot of things. Right. But you might not be able to send a um, probe to Jupiter and, or, you know, to, to like Pluto or something and and have it be there exactly when you want it to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th- there's going to be a point at which it can't, it no longer serves. In the meantime, we have to work with what we have. So the project, if you remember this in Fides at ratio, Right. Mm-hmm. John Paul II is encouraging philosophers to recover. This is not an exact quote, but it's, I'm trying to be as accurate as I can be off the top of my head. Sure. To recover for philosophy, it's its truly metaphysical range. Right? Now, this is not simply, I think, um, for John Paul II, a sociological um, exhortation. In other words, I wish that you philosophers would start doing metaphysics again. But instead that there's a project before philosophy, mm-hmm. which is to develop metaphysics once again, not simply to start doing it again as if we put it down and now we're going to do it again. But to find the path to, to actually we don't have the metaphysics we need right now and to develop it. Right, That seems to be what he really has in mind. And perhaps if that were done, then the kinds of um, the kinds of questions that arise in the debate over personalism versus classical Thomism, right, there would be some way to resolve those. If we had a metaphysic that could answer the kinds of questions, you see what I mean, right? Either position is going to raise problems, rather serious ones. But if we had the right metaphysic, now some people would say such a metaphysic isn't possible, but John Paul II seems to think that it is, Mm -hmm. and it encourages us to be creative and trying to develop it, Right. If we had a metaphysic that could deal with those issues, then we might find that there are resolutions.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, you know, even within the, the uh, just kind of the, the, the humility and the uh, openness of the, of the true philosopher is to, to not say, you know, well, I have the end all be all to metaphysics. You know, St. Thomas would have never made that claim or, you know, or to say, you know, the, 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 the metaphysical case is closed. But to continue developing it in that you know in a way that is within the continuity, but you know, but but also within the realm of uh, of truth in, in this way. And I think you know, like you know, Norris Clark and uh, Peter Kraft and some of these, and John Paul II, of course, Max Shaler, you know, some of these some of these guys, they were really trying to 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 do it in a way that was helpful, not not just helpful, but you know, in continuity with what had already been laid out. Uh, within the Catholic Catholic intellectual tradition, uh, it mm-hmm. wasn't this kind of break that sometimes people characterize it as, um, but but a genuine kind of openness yeah. to 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 the approach of of not just theology but but the the, the human person in general. You know?
1: Right. Well, you know, what's interesting is actually about personalism, yeah. right? Uh, which now personalism, I would say, is uh, not synonymous with phenomenology, right. but is. Deeply, uh, deeply, um, intertwined with the phenomenological movement, right? If you look at the history of personalism, you can see that personalism is almost exclusively a Judeo-Christian phenomenon, right? (laughs) So if you think of, if you think of who are the personalists, right? I mean, who do we think of? We think of early on, of course, Martin Buber, right, who was a Jew, uh, Edmund Husserl, who was a Jew, Uh, Edith Stein, Stein. who was a Jew, became Catholic. Roman Ingerden, who was um, Catholic, right? Max Schaler, who was a Catholic, who was a Jew, became a Catholic, and eventually lost his way. I mean, he went off the rails Mm -hmm. at the end, but, um, but anyway, I mean, most of, for most of his career, right, you would say that he was solidly in the Judeo Christian camp. Uh, Karol Voigtiwa, right, and um, his companions. It's heavily, right, a Judeo Christian, um, movement.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, you know, something that, you know, was a big part of John Paul II's legacy, and one that, you know, we're not going to get into, you know, his theology of the body or anything, but I think, you know, like, that was a, a, a huge kind of contribution to to theology and to philosophy as well, is to, to, to re- remain open in this way, you know, not to set aside Thomism, not to to kind of go to a Thomism is the end all be all kind of attitude, but to say, you know, like Norris Clark said in there, you know, let's 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 build on uh, the metaphysical, you know, Thomism. Is there a way that we can come to these realities? Uh, very interesting stuff. And I think for for our for our listening audience, uh, it is a it is a fun theological rabbit hole that you can get into online uh, when you start looking up personalism, Thomism and and everything in there. So Uh, If you're if you have a few hours to waste, it is it is quite a fun little journey down that rabbit hole. But that does it for us today at Take Every Thought Captive. Uh, Check us out at CatholicStudiesAcademy.com. Until then, God bless.